Hello, and welcome back to the COVID pod with Dr. Ashish Jha. Today is January 29th, 2021, and this is our first episode of our second season. We will be continuing our bi-weekly conversations with Dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University, Ashish Jha, who is a world-renowned expert in public health and has really provided us with so much useful information over the past few months or almost a year of COVID-19. We are really excited to be back. I am Kate Ryan, and I'm joined by two of my colleagues at the Brown Daily Herald, Ratma Ibrahim and Amelia Sagatita. Hello, everyone. Um, Great to have you all back here and listening uh, to the COVID pod. Uh, My name is Amelia Sagatita, and I am a senior editor at the Brown Daily Herald. Yeah, great to have you guys all back. And my name is Rahma Ibrahim. I am now a section editor for science and research. On today's episode, we're diving into vaccine rollout and what the next few months could look like. Feel free to email us at herald at browndailyherald.com if you have any questions and stay tuned till the end. Thanks for listening. What has happened since we last spoke in November? We are in a new year. There's a new president. Um, vaccine administration is underway. And I guess we wanted to start with something that happened this week, um, which is that you got your first shot of the Moderna vaccine. So could you just tell us a little bit about that process? Sure. Yes. Um, so, yes. So vaccine rollout is starting to happen. Uh, started happening in December and has not gone super well, which we can talk more about. But um, one of the first group of people prioritized were frontline healthcare workers. And, you know, uh, as you all know, I I recently switched jobs about five months ago, right? And it came over. And so I also switched clinical uh, location. And and, uh, so I was just, I was waiting to get vaccinated until I was ready to start basically going back on the wards and seeing patients again. And so it, uh, all my credential stuff went through and I was ready. And so I, I, I needed to get vaccinated if I'm going to go back uh, and start seeing patients. And so I got set up. And what's interesting is the morning of, uh, I was texting with a friend and she said, so which vaccine are you getting? And I said, I have no idea. Like, I literally had no idea. And it was another way of saying it didn't matter. Like, it made no difference to me. Um, and I showed up and it was super simple, straightforward, you know, and I got my first shot felt fine, like my arm was sore for about 24 hours, but that happens after the flu shot too. Um, and the Moderna vaccine is known to cause more symptoms at the second dose. And I've had some friends who've had a, you know, who felt pretty exhausted for a day after their second dose. So uh, I'm ready for that, uh, but it was great. Like I, you know, obviously I think all of us eventually want to get vaccinated or most people do and people should. And for me, it was very important that I not cut in line and, um, but as a frontline health worker, like I needed to get vaccinated. It was good for me and everybody else as well. So, um, and it's been totally fine. And now it's almost been a week and I got my second shot scheduled about three and a half weeks from now. I'll let you know how it goes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and sort of going off that topic, we also have heard lots of stories in the news about vaccine hesitancy still being an issue, even among the people who were in these first few phases getting offered the first doses of the vaccine. And what do you usually say to people who express any doubt about that vaccine or 
this process in general? I think my feeling is I'm, I'm sympathetic uh, to people uh, being hesitant. Um, look, the vaccines were developed fast, and I know that a lot of people are worried about whether they are um, really safe and how much we really know about them. Um, I am obviously very comfortable because I feel like I've looked at the data and the data is really compelling that these vaccines are super safe. And, uh, and it is a bit of a problem that there's so many people in the healthcare uh, industry who are, who are hesitant because we need them vaccinated for themselves, but we also need them vaccinated for the people they're going to be taking care of. And uh, so my approach on this is uh, we should be engaging with them, talking to them, understanding their hesitancy and trying to address it respectfully. Uh, I also think some of those people who are hesitant will become less so over time as they watch their coworkers get vaccinated and do fine. Um, and then there are going to be really interesting policy questions that organizations are going to have to face. Like if you're running a hospital, do you allow doctors who have refused to be vaccinated practice in your hospital? And you could make the case that your first responsibility is to your patients and your patients are less safe. Um, you know, I cannot practice in the hospital if I don't get my flu shot. If I ever walked in and said, yeah, I'm skipping it this year, they would say your privileges are suspended until you uh, get vaccinated. And I think that's reasonable. I can imagine people are going to end up making the same choice. But I, and right now, I'd like to use more education, engagement, and understanding and less the stick of you're going to lose your job. Yeah, definitely. Um, thinking about the idea of policies as well. So another challenge that has been discussed um, in terms of the vaccine rollout is discrepancy in guidelines and procedures across state lines. So we were wondering, um, where would you recommend that people look to to get the best information um, for their state and also just generally um, if they're trying to learn more about the vaccine and its distribution? Yeah, so there, there are two sets of things. If you want good information about the vaccine, I do think, again, we've always looked to the CDC for this kind of information. Uh, the CDC has not been quite as reliable in the past year, but I'm actually very confident that that is already changing and will change under Rochelle Walensky. So Rochelle is a colleague and friend who is now the head of the CDC. Uh, she's fabulous and has more integrity and expertise than almost anybody I know, or more than anybody I know. She's incredible. So um, for people, if you're trying to just get good information about the vaccine, like go to the CDC website, and that's gonna have uh, probably the best summary of the data. Um, on what to do in an individual state, I mean, what's been interesting is that the, the previous administration more or less just said to every state, you figure it out on your own, and, and, and there's gonna be no real effort to do anything in a uniform way. Um, states are different. Like it probably, it does make sense to do things a little different in Rhode Island than in Montana, right? Um, but you do need some uniformity, some amount of guidance, some approach that does uh, cross state lines. And that's been hard. So I'm hoping that through more federal coordination, we'll get a bit more of that as well. Yeah, for sure. Do you also, in terms of people who like then have received the vaccine already, such as yourself, um, could you talk a little bit about what they should be mindful of then moving forwards, um, such as in regards to following public health um, regulations and policies yep. and such? Yeah, and I've only gotten one dose, so I am hardly protected. I, the data, by the way, just is that after about seven to 10 days after the first dose, you start having some protection. And as of this morning, I'm like day four or five. So right now I feel like I am the same as somebody who has 
not been vaccinated, my immune system hasn't had a chance to really kick in. Uh, but you really need two doses, right, to, to have the full protection of both Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, but the question is, okay, so I guess I will get my second dose in a few weeks. Uh, what happens? Can I take off my mask? Can I start like hanging out in bars? No. Uh, no for like many reasons. Uh, one of them is uh, it's 95%, not 100% protective. So, well, you say, well, that's still a lot and it's awesome. Like it's huge. Again, I don't want to undersell these vaccines. These vaccines are miraculous how good they are. Um, but 5% risk is not zero. And here's the key point. 5% of a big number is still a big number. So while the pandemic is really bad and there are lots of infections out there, I don't think I'm going to do anything differently. But once the pandemic starts getting under better control, cases come down, and again, let's hope all that happens, then being vaccinated, I think, does afford you a bit more flexibility. Um, and so could I imagine that in a few months, uh, being able to sit down with somebody else who's also been vaccinated, yeah, like that, that will feel much more comfortable. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of another uh, critical thing. And then the last thing that we still don't know is how much... Um, the vaccines reduce transmission. Now, one of the things that's really important for people to understand is a lot of people, because we don't know exactly how much, some people end up saying, oh, we don't know that the vaccine reduces transmission at all. That's not true. I think we have very good reasons to believe that the vaccine reduces transmission. But we don't know if it's 60% or 80%. And you know, it turns out I live at home with my kids and my spouse. And if I started acting irresponsibly, I could then come home and in fact, others. So there's all sorts of reasons why I still need to do all the public health stuff, both for myself and for my family. Uh, but once there is widespread vaccinations, like behavior will absolutely change. We will be able to wear masks less often. Uh, we'll be able to get together more often. Uh, all the stuff that we want to be able to do. So kind of considering, though, um, then that we have these still ongoing public health concerns um, that should, we should be wary of, um, one of the things we had all talked about uh, last semester um, before uh, we went on break um, was about how we have these testing measures in place um, and these preventative measures. So could you also speak a little bit um, to what those are like currently, both in our community and kind of more broadly where we stand right now? So let's talk about testing for a second, because um, one of the big misunderstandings that a lot of people have had is, well, once people get vaccinated, can we stop doing all this testing? And in fact, the short answer is no. And I think, um, so, so first of all, this spring, like Brown, obviously our testing regime is more or less what we had in the fall. And it's good because it worked, right? Like we had some really large outbreaks in Rhode Island, but very little. On, in the, uh, on the Brown campus, despite the fact that a lot of students live out in the community. So a reminder that a good testing regime is incredibly valuable and useful at, at allowing people to function and, and get a lot of their lives back. Um, the good news for the spring is while we could do that in the, at Brown, the rest of the community of Rhode Island couldn't really do that we're starting to see a lot more testing available in Rhode Island. So now people can go get tested uh, much more readily. And in fact, I've been encouraging people to get tested. And I think we'll see testing in public schools. We're gonna see testing elsewhere. So what was what we were privileged enough to be able to do, we will need to continue doing, but now other people will be able to do it too. And by the way, here's the part, I don't know if I've even told the Brown University leadership, so maybe they're gonna find out the first, my views on this. On this. Um, but 
I don't think we can stop testing next year. I expect, by the way, that uh, all the students will have the opportunity to be vaccinated uh, by next fall. Certainly that by summer, we should have enough vaccines available for everybody. Um, but it, and even a fully vaccinated campus, I would still have some sort of a testing regime next fall uh, because it's not clear to me that, uh, that we'll be able to keep the infections at zero uh, given what's going on, the variants, everything else. So I don't think testing is going to go away next year. Uh, we maybe not need to do it every, twice a week. We could dial it back a little. We probably don't need to do the same test. There will be other tests available. The 15-minute rapid test, so you get a result in 15 minutes. Um, you know, there, there are going to be advantages of being able to do it a bit differently, but we'll still need to be testing. I probably should have told the brown people that earlier, but they, they probably know. Anyway, I just, that was just some realizing that uh, that's not a view I've expressed publicly, but I've been thinking about that for a while. Sort of on that note about vaccinating at Brown and sort of uh, your ideas for what that could look like, um, we were wondering if you had, if you could give us maybe some insight as to what and when vaccination for college students as a whole may happen. Like, when do you sort of see that happening? What's the timeline you envision? It's a really good question. And just in the last 24 hours, we've seen two sets of data released, one from Novavax and one from Johnson Johnson this morning. And, um, and we've got to get more clarity from both companies of when vaccines will become available. So let's talk about my best guesses. And this is a lot of moving parts here, right? Um, I think m most adults, including college students, who want a vaccine, and college students are going to be kind of near the bottom of the line because they're like the healthiest and least lowest risk. I think most people, well, so let's work backwards. I think certainly by June, anybody who wants a vaccine should be able to get one. May, probably. April, probably not. Like somewhere around April, May, there will be a switch, right? April will still be like trying to vaccinate people who are at risk and the low risk people will still have a hard time getting it in April. But I can imagine by May, it becoming up to a point where all the high risk people have been vaccinated and we really open it up to everybody. It's possible it could slip into June, but I'd be surprised. So my, if I were a betting person, I'd say most college students will probably get vaccinated in May, could be June. I wish it were in April, but probably not. Yeah, and I guess shifting away from vaccines for a bit and focusing on Rhode Island as a whole and leadership. Um, so, you know, we spoke about this previously about you being recently named a member of incoming Governor McKee's uh, COVID-19 advisory group. But just for people that um, don't know, can you maybe talk about the announcement um, and just sure. what that role could look like? Yeah. Yeah. So I spoke to incoming Governor McKee um, and he wants to make sure that uh, he is really focused on using evidence-based approaches to get COVID under control in Rhode Island. And he asked if I'd be willing to be on his advisory committee. And the, sh the short answer was yes, and absolutely. Like, you know, with Governor Raimondo, it, it was more, I was, I'm on an advisory committee for the Department of Health, but with Governor Raimondo, it was often just conversations with her, with her office. Uh, look, my job is very simple, right? I want to be helpful. I want to give advice. And, um, and the political leaders can ultimately decide how they use that advice, but I want to give them kind of open, honest advice. And I told incoming Governor McKee that I want to be helpful to him every bit as much as I was to as much as I wanted to be with Governor Mundo. So we'll be I, I don't know the details yet of this advisory committee. I don't know how often it's going to meet. I don't know all the issues that it's going to tackle. But I expect that 
uh, if I am being helpful, that they should feel comfortable reaching out, and I'll I'll continue engaging. And we also underwent a major leadership transition last week with President Joe Biden being inaugurated. And we were wondering if you could reflect on sort of what you're seeing so far with this new administration in terms of policies, but also what you hope to see going forward. Yeah, what a change. Um, and, and let me actually frame the change in the following way. Um, because, you know, people can easily see what I'm about to say and what I have been saying as a somehow deeply partisan comment that Joe Biden is a Democrat and maybe I'm more supportive of Democrats and Republicans. I don't see it that way at all. I see it as the rules of the road in the U.S. federal government has always been when a Republican is in office, they put in conservatives, hello, um, but competent, experienced conservatives. And then when Democrats are in office, they put in liberals, competent, experienced liberals. And then you can see policy changes. But the fundamental underlying principle is these people have to be competent and experienced. And so then in the past, under a Bush administration or even an Obama administration, I would disagree on policy. But I never wondered whether these people were actually competent and could do their job or not. I just disagreed with their approach because you know maybe there's a philosophical difference. Um, the last couple of years of the Trump team, it was, I mean, I'm going to be excessively harsh, but it was filled with people who were incompetent who didn't understand disease outbreaks, didn't understand how this stuff works, didn't understand vaccinations, and just kept bungling everything. Like literally could not give deep information about how many vaccine doses were available. Like doesn't feel to me like an un unsolvable problem. So the biggest breath of fresh air is that the people that President Biden has put in are all deeply competent people, deeply experienced. They're just good at their job. Now we, can agree, now we can have a debate on policy and we can debate trade-offs, but they're like good at their job. And that is already making a difference. They're communicating, they're not downplaying. So President Trump and his team kept saying, this pandemic is gonna go away. These guys are not saying it's gonna go away. They're, gonna, they're saying it's gonna get worse before it gets better because they're actually being truthful. So it's a totally different world and I'm having to adjust because I generally am in public you know, saying like, don't listen to the people in the federal government. They're giving you like junk information. And now it has to be much more nuanced. Like Rochelle Walensky, who I think is brilliant, is saying X. I think I have a slight disagreement, but it's a very different level of conversation, right? So uh, I, I'm much more hopeful, of course. It's nice to have people who know what they're doing running the government. Uh, I think things are going to get much, much better. I trust information coming out much more. But they've been in office for about nine days and they need more time to sort out the mess and, and get things back in, in shape. And then I guess, is there anything else hopeful that you would want to leave us with this week? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So there are a couple of challenges, right? You, people are probably hearing about the variants and how bad things are. Uh, are and the variants really are complicated. But what I, the, the point I want to make to people is... Um, and, and much more hopeful, especially with, a, with a, as I said, a competent federal government. Um, and, and one of the other points actually is a competent federal government who understands that we have to engage with the world because this is a global pandemic. Um, but we are gonna get through this. By the end of this semester, by the end of the spring semester, um, I know we are in a three semester system, so it's a little different timing wise, but let's just say by the end of spring, forget the semesters, um, life will really begin to feel meaningfully better. And if we do the things that we need to do well, we will never look back. Like these are the hardest days. And so 
for folks who are listening, what I would say is that this month, rest of, you know, basically January, February, March are the hardest months of this pandemic. And April will be better, I promise. And May will be way better. And June is going to start feeling like a new version of normal, June into July. So if people are feeling like I can't keep going like this, I totally understand. Got to hang on a little bit longer, not that much. Vaccines are coming. Uh, we're going to have more of them. And we've got, we've got real policies um, that are starting to make a difference. And I'm incredibly hopeful. But people have to hunker down for a couple more months because it's just it's that time period right now where this is, the, this is it. And then we're going to get through this. And then, and then we're going to be in better shape. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing your insight and optimism with us, um, as always. And we look forward to more conversations this semester um, as those changes begin to happen over the next few months. Thank you so much for restarting this. I really enjoyed doing this in the fall, and I'm glad that we're going to continue to do it uh, in 2021. This podcast was produced by the Brown Daily Herald. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, browndailyherald.com. The music was created and composed by Catherine Beggs, a Brown University undergraduate student. And tune in in two weeks on February 12th for our next episode. Thank you for listening.